0: Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I want to welcome you to Mount Pleasant. And if you are visiting with us, as you saw on the screen earlier, um, our pastor, Joey Anthony, is away and he is preaching at another church. He doesn't only have two services this morning. He has three. So uh, be praying for him and be uh, be thinking about him as he has been asked to go and as we have our missions emphasis uh, you know, the end of February, the beginning of March, they're having that at that church and they've asked him to speak there uh, for that. But it is always a pleasure, an honor uh, for me to be able to stand in front of you this mo- uh, any morning, any day, any service to preach the gospel. Um, I-, I count it an honor and a blessing from the Lord. Um, this morning we're going to continue where Joey left off. Uh, in our sermon series, throughout the book of uh, John, and the sermon series has been entitled "Only Jesus," uh, and uh, that 's the focus throughout all of the book of John is that it 's only Jesus. So remember that this whole book points us to Jesus, the one and only the true Messiah. Uh, And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it out now and turn with me to the book of John, the 8th chapter. As we dive into John 8, you may recognize in some of your Bibles, uh, the first portion of John 8, actually verse 53 um, uh, of John 7, going into John 8 and through verse 11 may be in brackets or it may even have a statement in there that says something similar to the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. Uh, So uh, it's important for us to think about that because scholars have debated over the years whether this passage should be included in John and another section in Scripture or actually nowhere in Scripture at all. So here's how we're going to conclude on that moving forward. First, there is enough historical evidence that this account actually did take place. So we're going to agree on that. If you go through history and look at the historical evidence, not just uh, from what we see in Scripture, but other places, there's enough historical uh, evidence that Jesus did have this interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes and the woman who was caught up in adultery. And secondly... There is nothing about this passage that contradicts any other part of Scripture. So with that said, we're going to study and preach and and read this passage, treating it as it is an inspired word of God, and leave the debating for another time in another setting. Is that good? All right, good. So as we look at this passage in John, may we first get an understanding for the difference between two terms. Two terms we hear often in church. The terms are grace and mercy. And I believe I was in a uh, staff meeting once, uh, probably about six months ago or so, where Pastor Joey talked about these two terms. And this is how he defined it. So I figured if he defined it this way, it's probably a good way to define it this morning. And he defined grace as God granting us something that we do not deserve. Is that not grace? I mean, and we get that every day. While mercy, on the other hand, is being God holding back what we do deserve. So those are two different terms, two different characteristics of Jesus that we see throughout the scripture that actually go together, but they're actually separate as well. So, for example, God's grace is how God grants us his love, life, and ultimate salvation through his Son. That's his grace. On the other hand, his mercy keeps us from his wrath, complete torment and punishment, and keeps us from not being forgiven of our sins. Aren't we thankful for both of those? Because we deserve not to be forgiven of our sins. We deserve complete torment and punishment. We deserve the wrath of God. But because His mercy is so sweet, it protects us from all of that. Don't get me wrong here. This doesn't mean that our life is painless, it doesn't mean that our life is always beautiful, but rather that it should be a lot more painful. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, our lives actually should be more painful than what they are. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in John chapter 8. But before we get to that, and before we get into the scriptures, let me share with you a little bit of how the Lord has shown grace and mercy in my life. And you'll get a better understanding for who I am as we move into this. Not many people know this about me outside of my extended family, and probably even some of our closest friends, even here in the church, may not know this about me. But as a kid, growing up, as a young child, I struggled with major anxiety issues. As a kid, being out in public would cause major anxiety issues that drastically affected me. There are pictures of me as a kid at family's weddings. And almost every picture as a kid out in public, I'm holding on to my mom's leg, bawling. Both years that I took kindergarten, didn't we all take kindergarten twice? I mean, am I the only, am I the only one who slept through kindergarten the first year? Please tell me I'm not. But both years I took kindergarten was extremely hard. Because I had to be with people in a social setting that was not my mom. Growing up, one of my uncles actually gave me a nickname. And we laugh about this today. And he gave me the nickname, Coat Rack. And he gave me that nickname because I would literally go into their house and stand by their front door the entire time. Sometimes for hours at one time. It was a real struggle for me at a young age to talk to people other than my immediate family. The Lord, my fifth grade year in elementary school, um, saved me. And I'm I'm just like, like, I remember it like it was yesterday. He he saved me. He saved me for my sins. He Saved me from my weaknesses. And he gave me two friends just a couple years before that named Jason and David. And I believe that God placed these two friends in my life to help me with anxiety issues that I struggled with. Because they obviously did not struggle with those issues. And later, the Lord allowed me to lead both of them to the Lord. And I can even say today, David is a part-time youth minister ...at a church in our hometown. There was even more than just that, though. There was even more than just the anxiety issues... ...but part of the anxiety was I had speech issues... ...a speech impediment problem... that um, I, ...and also uh, problems with pronouncing certain letters correctly. So, specifically, the letter R gave me a lot of problems... Uh, that didn't affect how my friends viewed me. It didn't affect how my family viewed me. But I grew up through school, all the way through high school, very cognitive of how people would view my speech. It would take much to that in social settings, in settings with a lot of people there, for me to speak like I am now without major stuttering issues or to speak without saying words that would just. Not sound correct. It was nothing for kids to laugh or make fun of me because I stuttered, or nothing uh, uh, for them to make fun of me because of what, how I would say, you know, or hearing kids, students talk about the way that I would say certain wo- words would cause even more anxiety about being in front of people. So as a kid, I took speech classes. I took speech classes in school. I went to speech pathologists out of school. And I did that all the way through high school. And I remember like it was yesterday, sitting in driver's ed, my sophomore year of high school, first semester, and the speech pathologist from the school walking into driver's ed and saying, I need to see Joe." Now everyone in the class knew who she was. I stood up had to go out of class and spend that class period on speech. Totally humiliated, hearing what kids were saying about me as I'm walking out, laughing, laughing and snickering as if it was a joke. Went home that evening, stro- still struggling with the issues that I had, and went to my mom and dad, and, and, and they knew my struggles and they were always willing to listen to me and said, Mom and Dad, I really don't want to take these classes anymore. I, I mean, it's, just, it's too hard. It's too hard. So that was the last day I had ever, I've ever seen a speech pathologist. My mom and dad said, Joe, if, if it's that big of an issue, we want to take that, that out of your life. So they gave me that freedom to make that decision uh, to stop seeing uh, them. Move on two years later. As I'm graduating high school, the Lord calls me into ministry. He calls this kid into ministry who struggles speaking and is nervous around people. Family members today would, if they were standing right here or if they're on the live stream watching, they would make comments like this. It is only by the grace of God that he called me into ministry. Like, Nobody would have ever expected me to be that person. So when I read the story of Moses, like, yes, I totally relate with what Moses was saying and what he was thinking when he was called to to speak about the love of God. See, God's grace is seen here by giving me a ministry position in which I don't deserve and helping me get through some of the struggles that I do have. See, I don't deserve, uh, or uh, his mercy is also seen here by not just giving me a desk job in which I can hide behind my weaknesses and not have any interactions. His grace and mercy has been extremely evident in my own personal testimony. And let me tell you, church, I'm thankful for a doctrine called progressive sanctification. That I am called to continue to grow in my faith. And I, I'm not called, you know, Matt Chandler uses the phrase, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. That we are called to progressively grow in our faith. So I'm thankful uh, for that even 19 years into ministry, it is still a growing process for me to communicate Effectively. I am thankful that God is not done with me and that God continues to grant His grace and His mercy in my life. I'm thankful that now my wife and I can talk about this struggle that I've had and just call it awkwardness to this day. That it's just me being awkward, and that's okay. That it's, it, The struggle is real, but that's okay. So it's still a growing process to not have anxiety around people, large groups of people, not to get nervous about what people might think or what people might say. But the Lord's grace and his mercy helps me to grow in this daily. And I think that as we read this passage here in John chapter 8, we see God's grace and His mercy changing a lady's life and calling us to, if we are broken, to be restored and calling us to be the light in which Jesus was. So with that, in honor and reverence to our Lord. If you're able and willing, please stand as we read John at the end of chapter 7, verse uh, 53 through 8, 20. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught up in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such uh, women. So what did, they, what did you say? What do you say? This they said, uh, said to test him, that this might have, have some charge against. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself, Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I in the Father who sent me, in your law it is written that your that the testimony of two people it is 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 true, and I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father, if you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke to the treas- in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you that we can see where those who are caught up in sin, those who are caught up in bondage, those who are broken have hope. And Lord, we pray that today that this passage would come alive, that it would stick to our hearts, and Lord, we would be forever changed. Lord, thank you for those who are here. And may this be honoring to your name as we open up your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have two points today, several subpoints under each of these. But the first point that I, I think we see here and we can agree on, looking at the first 11 verses here in John chapter 8, is this idea that God grants mercy to the broken. He grants mercy to the broken. It would not have been uncommon for Jesus to be up on a mountain, or even the Mount of Olives. Because any time that Jesus was going to Jerusalem any day, what he would do is, before he would go to Jerusalem, he would go up a mountain for two purposes. He would go up a mountain to spend time in prayer. He would also go up a mountain to be able to teach. So it's not uncommon that Jesus is up the mountain. Jesus, Jesus consistently went up there. And so we're assuming that's probably what he's going to do, is go up there to pray and to teach. And it's about that point that the Pharisees and the scribes show up. We see there in verse 3 that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught up in adultery. So the Pharisees and scribes show up on the scene at Mount Olives. Mount of Olives. Now, who are the Pharisees and scribes? The Pharisees, they are the religious leaders of the day, the political leaders of the day. They're the, I would say, the religious legalists who are opponents of Jesus. They are critical of his ministry. They are malicious in their attack uh, towards Jesus and their deliberations with him. They say they are about the law, but in reality, they don't even correctly understand the law. But who are the scribes? So we see that there are Pharisees and scribes there. Who are the scribes? The scribes were also about the law. They were intellectuals. They were recorders. They were the political advisors or diplomats of the day. So it's interesting that the Pharisees and scribes, when we see them in Scripture, it's almost always talking about the law. And the reason that's interesting is because they don't truly understand why the law was given. The law is meant for our own good. Okay? It is meant for our own good. When Adam Adam and Eve were given the first law, they were given only one law, one commandment. Not to eat of that tree. That was meant for their own good. And every other law that God has ever created uh, or, or put in place has been there for our own good. And what we see with the Pharisees and scribes is they have this legalistic type of approach. And this legalistic type of approach, let me tell you this church, has no place in the church. And that's where the Pharisees and scribes, where they spent their life. They were the hypocrites of the day because they only want others to be guilty of the law but refuse to be guilty of the law themselves. So what we see here in Jesus' interaction with the woman who is called up in adultery is Jesus grants both our mercy both to the accused and the accusers. Isn't this how Jesus works most of the time? Like, even those who are trying to trick him, Jesus is still showing mercy and grace. See, the woman who is caught up in adultery, she deserves judgment. There is no doubt she deserves judgment. But Jesus protects her from that judgment. So, in uh, after verse 3, when... Uh, the, the scribes and Pharisees bring her. In verse 4 they say, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught up in the act of adultery. Like he didn't know that already? Okay? Uh, so he's, it, notice they say teacher. That's important. They didn't say Lord. They said teacher. Uh, he, she's been caught up in the act of adultery. Uh, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge against him. Mistake. You probably shouldn't be testing Jesus. He's going to pass it. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast or be, be the first to cast the stone." Hmm. He was protecting the woman caught up in adultery. There are those today who deserve true judgment from God because they have never asked for forgiveness. We all deserve judgment. But those who don't ask Jesus for forgiveness will receive his judgment. If you want Jesus to show you the same mercy he showed this lady, it starts with you confessing and repenting of your sins, and I will show you later on where I think that's what took place here. See the Pharisees and scribes they are the ones that deserve judgment too for trying to trick Jesus. John MacArthur says it like this: if Jesus rejected the law of Moses, his credibility would have been gone, but if he held to the Mosaic law his reputation and compassion and for And forgiveness would have been hindered. So, like, he's in a no-win situation, and he still wins. That's what I love about my Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes have a misrepresentation of Jesus. They don't truly understand who Jesus is. Does that sound like any particular culture today? A misrepresentation of Jesus? See, I think we have a biblical Jesus and we have a cultural Jesus. I think the biblical Jesus commands repentance of sins, where the cultural Jesus uh, disregards repentance of sins. I think the biblical Jesus commands with divine authority, where the cultural Jesus gives suggestions instead of commandments. I believe the biblical Jesus preaches God's righteousness, where the uh, uh, cultural Jesus preaches only on love. I believe the biblical Jesus exalts, uh, his exaltation goes to the Father's will, where the cultural Jesus says that you should serve your own will, not God's. I believe the biblical Jesus commands to deny yourself, where the cultural Jesus encourages you to love yourself and gratify your desires. I believe the biblical Jesus gives you salvation, hope, and peace and joy and I believe the cultural Jesus gives you health wealth and happy feelings I believe the biblical Jesus expects you to give to the church where the cultural Jesus says if you have anything left then you can give to the church. I believe the biblical Jesus commands biblical community where I believe the cultural Jesus says if you can find a church and a community to fit your schedule, well great. I believe the biblical Jesus speaks truth and the cultural Jesus says we can't Offend anyone. Let me ask you today, church, which one are you following? Are you following the biblical Jesus or are you following the cultural Jesus just like the Pharisees and the scribes were following there? See, tracking through the New Testament, the problems with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes were their view of Jesus. And like today, they didn't realize that the historical Jesus wasn't all about themselves. The true, historical, biblical Jesus that we see in this New Testament is not about you. It is about our Father God. And I pray that we as a church would would really repent of any meaning that would be about us and turn to the true biblical Jesus. Think of the passage in Matthew chapter 7. Where it says this: Judge not, that you will be uh, be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek, or why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, "Let me take the speck out of your eye"? when there is a log in your own, you hypocrite. He's speaking to Pharisees. Like, you hypocrite. Like, you like to point the law on everyone else, but you don't like the law to, to convict you. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of someone else's eye. See, we must understand, it's as the people of God, this we, this passage has often been misrepresented in the church. People will say, Well, did you not read? Judge not, that you will be not judged. You know, we, we're not called to judge. That has nothing to do what, with what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is don't be a hypocrite. In order to help someone else grow in their faith, you need to deal with your own sins first. It doesn't mean that we ignore sin. No, we need, a, be, be, we need to be a body of believers that can come alongside of one another and encourage and edify one another. But you know what? You cannot do that if you do it like the scribes where you're not willing to deal with your own sin first. See, the Pharisees wanted the woman to be caught up in adultery. And actually, a lot of historical accounts, you know what they will say? Is that the Pharisees actually set her up To be caught up in adultery. Like they planned it. So they wanted it. Because they wanted her to be judged. But here's the problem. If they're going to do that. They're going to be judged that same way. And and if you read the historical account. and, And think about the history of the Old Testament. If. If they really went through this, here's the thing. The guy should have been there too. And guess who should have been the one doing the judgment? The Pharisees and the scribes. So what Jesus does is he gives them the historical of what should happen. Okay, I'll draw the line. You guys do what you're supposed to do then. But they didn't want that because they knew they had their own issues themselves. And then we also see here is that the idea that Jesus isn't biased in whose sins he deals with. Like the woman caught up in sin, we are a broken people, all right? Even Christians, let's be honest with ourselves. I'm going to be honest with you. Even with some of the issues I have, I'm a broken person. We are all broken people in need of a Savior that's going to continue to help us uh, with our struggles Daily, we, we are a broken people in need of grace and mercy, and we need that daily. The beauty of this story is that the woman did not run away from the mercy of God like we so often do. Also, I look at the mercy that we see here in John 8 similar to mercy that we see somewhere else in the Old Testament. Uh, now, now, I could be way off on this, and that's fine. I'm sure somebody will correct me if I, if I am. But I look at uh, John 8 similar to the story of Jonah. And just track with me real quick on this, okay? The story of Jonah. You have Jonah who, let's just be honest with, with ourselves. He hates the Ninevites, right? He does not like the Ninevites. God tells them to go there. And Jonah's reaction is pretty much, no, they're a godless people. They don't deserve you. All right, so think of Jonah as the Pharisees and scribes. This woman deserves judgment. The Ninevites deserve judgment. So when you compare the Ninevites with the woman that's caught up in adultery, and you compare Jonah with the Pharisees and the scribes, there's some very Similar characteristics of the mercy of God in both of these scenarios. God grants mercy to both the Ninevites and the woman caught up in adultery. Are they a godless people? Yes. Aren't we? I mean, seriously, like, yeah. Like, thousands of people get saved uh, with the Ninevites. This woman at the well, or a woman at the well. The woman caught up in adultery, she gets saved. And then you have Jonah, And the Pharisees and scribes. His mercy isn't just seen with uh, the woman caught up in adultery. His mercy is also seen with the Pharisees and scribes. Notice they walk away. That is God's mercy on them. And his mercy is seen with Jonah. How is it seen with Jonah? Jonah doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And he gets swallowed by a fish. And then is spit out. And then he still has to go back to the Ninevites. And he still is doing it reluctantly. And at the end of Jonah, it's sort of depressing. He's sort of like disappointed that these people got God's righteousness. Just like the Pharisees and scribes. I'm sure they were disappointed that this woman got God's righteousness. Isn't it a good thing? that mercy isn't dependent on our obedience. The other thing we see here is that Jesus wants the broken to be restored. Here, this phrase here, when he says, go and sin no more, means leave your life of sin. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one Lord. Underline that word Lord there. She didn't say teacher like the Pharisees and scribes. She said, no one, Lord. I believe that we see a transformation there. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I, I condemn you. Go and now on, or go now on and sin no more. Just as the lady is restored, recognizing Jesus as Lord, you can be restored today as well. By surrendering your life to Jesus, by asking him to forgive you of your sins, and by turning your life away away from the cultural Jesus to the biblical Jesus. And you know what? This, what we see here with the woman, it sets us free to obey the greatest law. To love our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our body, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Point number two. Uh, verses 12 through 20. And, then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, light of life. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me or my father. If you knew, if you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the, tes- in his te- in the tes- uh, treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Here's the thing. Jesus grants mercy in the midst of darkness. Jesus is the one who turns darkness into light. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness fell upon it. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light and there was light. Jesus was there, the Trinity was there at creation. When you read the story about creation, you will hear hear him say, let us make man in our image, speaking of the full triune God. It's not just God the Father, it's the whole Trinity at creation. Jesus is the light that is being created there. Uh, We also see in John 1, 1 through 5, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness." Jesus, that's Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when you go outside and you see light, let that be reminding of you, remind you of Jesus. When you go home and you go in a dark room and you turn on the light, may that remind you of Jesus. Because if it wasn't for Jesus, there would not be light. He is Light. And some of our lives are in complete darkness. They feel as if there is no hope, there is no peace, there is no joy. But what will happen is, if you surrender, if you surrender your life, then that will take you out of the darkness into the light. But you know what? Jesus doesn't just turn darkness into light. Jesus expects us to follow the light. Many of us want only some part of our lives, the convenient part of our lives, to be in the light. As long as it doesn't sacrifice me too much, then I want that to be in the light. The problem is, following Jesus, following the light, isn't always easy and isn't always beautiful. But I can tell you this, it's always worth it. Now, this may not be in your notes, but I want you to write this down. I heard this from my pastor growing up, and it's always stuck with me, okay? And I want it to stick with you like it stuck with me. And he may may not even remember he said this. But he said this statement. We should desire to be spotlights instead of streetlights. So let me explain this, how this works. So we're going to do a little illustration. And I'm going to turn on the right lights this service instead of the wrong ones. Okay. So if you're a street light, this is what happens. Okay. If you're a street light, this may be your parenting and you're in the light. But what happens is you keep walking. And this is your social activities. This is your biblical community. It's in the darkness. But then you keep going, and maybe you get over here, and this is your, your church attendance. Maybe that looks really good. Maybe that's really in the light, because you're here every week. But here's the problem. Then it comes to our church giving. And we go over here, and we're back in the darkness. And what happens is our lives, if we are streetlights, we go in and out of the darkness all day long, all week long, all year long. And what happens is we are truly not in the light at all. But I got good news for you. You don't need to be a streetlight. Because you can be the spotlight. And here's the beauty about being in the spotlight is I have my social activities right here. I have my my ball team right here. I have the things that I enjoy to do, my fellowship activities right here. But you know what? I move over here, and guess what? I have my biblical community right here. Okay? I have my church attendance right here. And that light is still on me. And then I move just a little bit farther. And guess what? The light follows me and my church giving is right here. And and the way I parent is right here. And the way I minister to my community and the way I serve my community is right here. Church, we are not called to be a street light where we go in and out of the light. We are called to be like Jesus, where if Jesus is the Lord and the Savior of your life, guess what? That light needs to follow you wherever you go. And I pray that that just helps you get a better understanding and a better illustration of being a street light versus being a spotlight. Thank you, Jason. And, and, and Lord, may, may the Lord help us understand that difference there. So, like, to be a streetlight means you're more concerned with the temporary rather than the, than the eternal. You're you want to give to Jesus the leftover change that you have rather than sacrificial giving. You perceive the gathering together as a church is less of a priority than most other activities. If you're a street light, you're. You justify sinning because it becomes normality. If you're a street light, you allow culture to shape you more than the scriptures. If you're a street light, you pray only when times get tough. If you're a street light, you only care about where that you're going, not how you get there. If you're a street light, you run out of the light and spend most of your time in darkness. But there is good news we're called to be a spotlight. A spotlight always lives in light. A spotlight cares about both where they are going and how they get there. A spotlight prays without ceasing. A spotlight cares more about the scriptures than what culture tells them. A spotlight neither justifies or normalizes sin. A spotlight perceives that gathering together as a church is one of the most important things that they will do. A spotlight gives their money and time sacrificially out of the abundance of their heart and not just the leftovers in a spotlight is concerned with the eternal things not the temporary things church we need more spotlights in this community And can you imagine, you know, when you're driving, if you ever see a spotlight on something, like, you just kind of wonder what's there. Can you imagine if that spotlight, if we had 600 spotlights here at Mount Pleasant, people would be driving by on Sunday morning saying, what's going on there? What's happening there? I need to go check that out. We need more of that and less of the hypocrisy that we often see in today's Christian culture. doesn't stop there when Jesus says light of the world it doesn't stop there the last point here let your testify match your exemplify let your testify match your exemplify let me just quickly say what what Jesus does here just in my own terms so Jesus says you know your law says that when two testify of this, that you're going to agree with it. He says, I'm testifying about it, and so is my father. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying. My words match my action. My testify matches my exemplify. My testimony matches my life. And Jesus makes sure that we understand that. So I ask you today what do you testify about? And does it match your lifestyle? Would it shock somebody this morning if they knew you were sitting in church? That person? No, not them. There's no way. Does your testify match your exemplify? Or better yet, I've heard it said from professors and book writers, everyone's a theologian. We're all theologians. Some of of us are just bad at it. We're bad theologians. We we all believe in, like, we all say something about God. We all believe something about God. Some of us just believe the wrong thing. So let me ask you this. We all testify about God. With our life and with our words, are we testifying the right thing? See, Jesus encountered all types of people who tried to mess him up, who tried to treat him uh, in a way that was unfair to our King. They brought the adulterous woman. They tried to mess him up, and he had to explain his relationship with. They tried to mess him up with him trying to explain his relationship with the father. And through it all, Jesus displayed mercy while being the light of the world. We don't deserve his mercy, but he grants it to us. If you're broken today, if you're in darkness today, he is extending his mercy to you. He is extending his light to you. All you have to do is ask Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and ask him to be the Lord and Savior of your life because he died on the cross for your sins. He died on it so that you could have life and that you would just submit that to him and your life would be Forever change. If you're a Christian and caught up in sin, turn away from that sin this morning. Allow Jesus to reign triumphantly over that sin. With that said, I have two things, and we'll close. In true Pastor Joey form, two things for you to do. First thing to do: receive God's mercy. Don't run from it. Receive. God's mercy, don't run from it. I don't care what struggles you have in your life. I shared with you this morning a struggle that I've had in in my life, and I still struggle with it. But here's the thing, don't run from it. God grants grace and mercy. Secondly, be a spotlight, not a streetlight. Be a spotlight, not a streetlight. Let God change you forever. This morning, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time for you to respond. I don't know where you stand with the Lord, but you know what? If if you're if you're not a Christian this morning and you're living in darkness and you need the light of Jesus, please come forward. Let us share that with you. Um, if you're a believer and you finally are seeing some gray areas in your life. Come to altar. Allow the Lord, uh, Lord, the Lord to work with you on that. Finally, surrender those things to the Lord so that you can walk in the light as He is in the light. Let's, let, church, let's fill this altar this morning with people who want to run towards the mercy of our Lord and not away. Psalm one seventeen one says this praise him, all nations, glorify him all peoples, for his faithful love to us is great, and the lord's faithfulness, his faithfulness, his faithful grace, his faithful mercy endures forever let's pray, Father, I love you, I thank you God for this opportunity to be here this morning and Lord I pray that our faith and mercy uh our our grace and mercy that we have with you um, is very evident i pray it's evident in the way that uh, we live our lives and lord if it's not evident in the way that we live our lives i pray that today we would surrender that to you and then lord there may be those in here this morning who do not know you as their personal lord and savior God, I pray that if there's anybody, that, Lord, you would call them out of that darkness into your light this morning. That, Lord, that their sense of, of being hopeless, hopeless in the bondage that they're in, can be turned into hope. Their sense of not having peace can be turned into peace. Their sense of not having true joy can be turned into joy this morning. Lord, we ask that you would just be working in the hearts and the lives of our people this morning. You would challenge us, that God, you would convict us, and that we would surrender everything to you. And I pray this in your name. Amen.